Hello again, this is Buck Benning speaking. Welcome to another episode of Zero Hour. Today's episode features actor Howard Duff. And Howard Duff uh, has worked with Elliot Lewis many times in the past. Uh, Howard Duff is famous for being Sam Spade in the uh, original old-time radio classic, uh, Sam Spade, and uh, who was originally played on screen by Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon. Uh, so here you get hit to hear him doing a kind of a riff on the Sam Spade character in some ways, and uh, get a chance to have, have Elliot Lewis working with him, of course, as the producer-director of The Zero Hour. And he would work with him again, uh, the both of them would work together again uh, on Sears Radio Theater that we presented uh, uh, a couple weeks ago with the two of them together. Anyway, I enjoy this great... Um, episode of Zero Hour, very nice sound, and uh, before this you might want to check out too, I've put up an interviews with both, uh, Chuck Shaden did interviews with Howard Duff and with Elliot Lewis about a year and a half after this, and so it's kind of neat to hear them both talking to Chuck Shaden, and they were within, I think, two days of each other that he did the two interviews, so that's kind of cool. Uh, anyway, enjoy tonight's Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kim Platt's Gymkhana Fall Play. The Princess Stakes Murder. Starring Howard Duff, Julie Adams, and Ray Danton. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. This week's story takes us into the fascinating realm of horses, jockeys, big money, big passions, the racetrack, where sleek, fleet-footed creatures run for the money, and behind the scenes, where there are those with much to hide, and where the stakes are sometimes greater than the odds makers would lead us to believe. We are about to meet Max Roper, private detective, and a good one. He's a man with a style. Subtlety isn't part of it. He's a gut reaction operative who acts upon what he calls feelings. If given the choice, one would be better off as his friend rather than an enemy. Max Roper had a friend, a little friend, a jockey, and a good one. Some called him the best. But sometimes the best just isn't good enough. 
especially when you're dead. Our story, The Princess Stakes Murder, begins after this word. They're in the stretch, and Calamity has the lead. Uh, Humble Hilda holding back. Sister Sally moving up. It's Sister Sally and Calamity. Calamity stepping out, pulling away. Uh, it's a Calamity by a length. It's always nice to win, even when you bet on the favorite. It was a big win all around. For Calamity, her owner, the trainer, but mostly for Willie Rich, the veteran jockey, and an old friend of mine. I'd driven down to Del Mar from L.A. because of Willie, as a matter of fact. He'd called me the night before wanted to see me. Nothing special, he'd said. I played it close, put down two bucks on him, made 80 cents. But Willie wasn't around after the race like he said he'd be. That didn't make any sense at all. So I asked Ali Regal about it. Regal used to be a top government agent. Now he was chief of Del Mar Security. He stood big as a mountain and just as incorruptible. Hey, Allie. Max. What's up? Hey, you're a long way from home. Uh, not much. Came down to watch Willie ride. That's worth the trip. Yeah, you seen him? Saw him in the winter circle. After that? After that? Well, now, that's funny. What's funny? I don't remember seeing Willie dress or nothing. <laughs> you know, these little guys maybe got lost. Yeah. Well, I got to get back to L.A. Tell Willie I was looking for him, will you? He in trouble? Not that I know of. I'll see you, Allie. Yeah, see you, Max. I was bugged on the drive back to L.A., and not just from the Labor Day traffic. Willie was a little guy, all right, but he walked tall and always said what he meant. And he said he wanted to see me. I had the uneasy feeling that there was a reason for Willie not meeting me after the eighth race. Men in my line of work get those feelings sometimes. Good private eyes can smell trouble. I'm good. And something stunk. Seven o'clock the next morning, my telephone started jumping out of the cradle. Eighteen. Nineteen. Twenty. Twenty-one. Yeah, yeah. I'll never get in shape this way. Roper here. Max, it's Ollie. Yeah. Hey, you're out of breath. Someone there with you? Just me and my stomach. We're doing sit-ups together. Hear from Willie? Heard from his wife. She hear from him? Saw him. He don't swim near as good as he rides. Give it to me, Allie. Well, it seems she went for a little midnight swim in their pool. Nearly landed on him. Was he dead already? Very. Thanks, Allie. Hang around, will you? I'm on my way. From what I was told, you could hear a screaming for eight miles. I got there at 1 a.m. The track physician, Dr. Taniguchi, figures that Willie died somewhere between 10 and 11. No visible marks of violence. Well, there wouldn't be any if you held a man's head underwater. Let's start with the obvious. His wife giving him a hard time? <laughs> he wouldn't have killed himself over that. I can't see Penny wanting him out of the way either. He let her roam, didn't he? He was always worth more booting home than winners. Now, why would she want him dead? Yeah, maybe she wants the pool all to herself when she gets home late nights. The owner, Tyler Clayton, what can you tell me about him? Let's see, he owns Calamity and several other nags. Tough, pig-headed man, he wants what he wants when he wants it. Well, he been his rider for long? About five years. Must have made Clayton a lot of money. Sure, but Clayton doesn't need it. I'll run over and see him. 
Maybe I'll find out what a rich guy like that really needs. Instead of going right to the Claytons, I decided to start with Willie Rich's widow, Penny. Willie's spread was at the end of a humpback dirt and gravel lane. It was expensive. Willie had booted home a lot of winners in his time and could afford the layout. Flashy little blonde at the far end of the pool, wearing very little of a strawberry bikini, looked like the most expensive bit of landscaping. She was wearing enormous sunglasses, smoking a joint. Uh, Mrs. Rich, my name is Max Roper. Maybe uh, Willie mentioned my name. We were friends. Everybody that calls says he was a friend of Willie's. Oh, he was a popular guy. Can you uh, tell me anything about it? What's to tell? He's dead, drowned in his own swimming pool. Well, I'm trying to find out who had it in for Willie. Who are you? Private investigator. I'm here because Willie was a friend of mine. I want to find out who knocked him off. That's a crock. For all anybody knows, Willie did it himself. Well, why would he do that? Ask him. We didn't talk much. The man doesn't kill himself just because his marriage isn't worth it. Why don't you get lost? Maybe somebody was trying to pressure him into something, you know. Maybe they were worrying him. They? Who's they? I was hoping you'd tell me, Mrs. Rich. Go to hell and don't bother to come back. I'll drop in again sometime when you're over your grief. As I approached my car, a man was just getting out of his. Husky, dark-haired, pallid, a clothes source. His features rough and crude, but not anywhere near his own real personality. We'd never been formally introduced, but I was well acquainted with his reputation. Johnny Cascio, a reliable enforcer for the mob. We brushed shoulders as he walked by, and he flipped his hand in salute. I half expected there'd be a knife in it. If he was a friend of the widow rich, he was moving in too fast for my taste. I sat in my car for a minute just thinking. Then I looked into my rearview mirror. Johnny Cascio had stopped. He was standing there, watching me. Rancho Santa Fe is a serene valley catering to the extreme tastes of millionaires. Horse lovers who like their pictures taken in a winner's circle. Tyler C. Clayton was the millionaire I wanted to see. He stood an easy 6'5 or 6. Went about 250. The man was a real big daddy. I liked Willie, Mr. Roper. Liked having him work for me. Damn good jockey. What do you drink? Uh, bourbon. You think, uh, Willie drowned himself, Mr. Clayton? Hell no. Why would he do that? Big money winning rider, good for a lot of years. Maybe you can give me a line on Willie's enemies. Enemies? He didn't have a one. Everybody liked Willie. Here you go. Thank you. Somebody didn't. Drowning a guy isn't exactly a demonstration of friendship. Sure wish I could help you. Clayton's eyes strayed past me. I turned my head and saw why. A woman had appeared in the open doorway. A strawberry blonde in her late 30s, quite beautiful, wearing expensive casual threads. As she acknowledged the introduction to me, she put her hand gracefully to her throat. A small gesture that triggered something in my memory. Oh, dear. Perhaps we should speak to Mr. Roper. Mr. Regal recommended him. No, Monica, I don't think there's any need to... Please, Tyler. All right, all right. If you have to, spill it. Well, Mr. Roper, we have a problem. It's Tyler's daughter, Pamela. She's been missing since yesterday. I'm sorry to hear that. How old is the girl? Twenty-two. That makes her old enough. Old enough for what? To leave home. 
She had a beauty appointment, a health spa in Poway called the Gilded Cuckoo. But she never got there. Hmm. Have you notified the police? No. Any particular reason why not, Mr. Clayton? I mean, uh, your daughter disappearing the same day Willie Rich was murdered? What are you implying? Well, I'm not trying to worry you, but that's the line the police would take. Are you suggesting that Pamela's been kidnapped? No, but, uh, well, somebody could have tried to coerce you about a horse and got even because you wouldn't give in. Just you find her and stop asking so damn many fool questions. I don't believe a damn word you're saying, and that's the last I'm... That's the last you're going to get out of me. I'm sorry, Mr. Roper. No, that's all right. You have a picture of the girl, Mrs. Clayton? Right over there, in the silver frame. By the way, was that your mare, Sister Sally, that got beaten by Calamity, your husband's filly? Calamity didn't beat her. Willie Rich did. Would you say that would be reason enough for you to kill Willie, Mrs. Clayton? No, Mr. Roper. I wouldn't. The gilded cuckoo in Poway only proved that business in narcissism was booming. These out-of-town spas were good for kicking habits with drugs and booze high up on the list, followed by weight and body conditioning for cosmetic vanity. Good places to get away from the husband, wife, family, or the FBI. I was leafing through folders that listed available courses without the humdrum detail of prices when the director pranced in. He was moon-faced, frisky, and thick-shouldered with small hands and feet. I could envision him at home in a kitchen or patting down a bed. Fluffing a pillow. Oh, Mr. Roper, I'm George Glendon. I direct the activities of our little sanctuary. Now, how might we help you? Well, I like to eat, drink, and I sit around a lot. Uh, How long would it take to put me in shape? Well, that all depends on your cooperation. See, with our program, your muscles may scream and tell you that you're being tortured. But believe me, they're going to tone up. See, we believe in the brain, the body, and the soul, all stimulated and fused into creativity and love. To attain the perfect body. I'll buy that, but how long does it take? Well, there's Plan A. It's a 12-lesson course. Oh, we do marvelous work with ozone treatment and face vacuuming. Face vacuuming? That's what I said. Face vacuuming. Self-love, my liege, is not so vile as self-neglect. And that's Henry V. You know, Shakespeare? Yes, I know. Well, why don't we look around? You'll be able to decide far easier after you've seen our facilities. The look around was a revelation. A fully equipped gym that didn't smell any better than my gym in Santa Monica. Mineral springs, baths, face packs, men and women hovered over by attendants, and a plastic surgery wing. Then we zeroed in on something called the Isotron Room. Through a one-way mirror, Glendon and I looked into a bare room furnished with only a long white couch and a machine called the Isotron. The man lying on the couch was stripped down to his trunks. Contact pads ran from his body to the machine. A man wearing a white coat flipped a switch, and the face of the man on the couch contorted. The pads covering his body jiggled. His arms, shoulders, back, stomach, and leg muscles went into massive contractions. The man in the white coat is our isotron specialist, Dr. Savage. Well, that figures. Oh, there is no pain. No, it is the body's natural reaction. Yeah. Uh, What happens if that guy in the white coat falls asleep during a session? Well, uh, then we'd have a very well-developed cause. (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, that, that would never happen. See, it's all automatic. Now, uh, do you uh, perhaps have any questions? Yes, one. It's about Miss Pamela Clayton. 
Are you a friend of the Claytons? More like a friend of a friend. I understand Pamela had an appointment with her hairstylist yesterday at 10.30, and she canceled out. Would you uh, know anything about it? Is this important? I'd say so. She's been missing for 24 hours. I happened to be in the neighborhood and told Mr. and Mrs. Clayton I'd check it out. Well, then, why don't we find out? I'd like to look at your appointment book, Miss Hill. Uh, yesterday morning, you said? Yes, about 10.30. Well, there must be some mistake. Uh... Miss Clayton wasn't scheduled for an appointment. See, at 10.30, we have a Mr. H. Masson down for Mr. K. Uh, that's Miss Clayton's usual hairdresser. Well, here, see for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. Sorry I troubled you. No trouble at all. I don't suppose we'll be seeing you again, Mr. Ropo. Oh, I wouldn't say that. A lot of what I saw here interests me. I might be back sooner than you think. I stood outside as the gilded doors closed behind me. That isotron machine in there, twisting and turning the human being into a shapeless mass. Whether it built muscles or not, I didn't know. But there was one thing I was sure of. It could tear a man apart. The sun warmed my back. Horses stomped lazily in their stalls. I was looking for Joey Zale, a jockey that had been thrown only once, and that one time enough to end his career. I found Joey Zale cleaning a stall. I noticed his hands as he lit a cigarette. They were huge. Above the waist, Zale was a middleweight. Only his crippled legs were pipe-stem thin. His face and body carried a twisted snarl. You Joey Zale? Yeah. What are you, the heat? Private Dick. Willie Rich was a friend of mine. Too bad it didn't do him any good. Can we talk? Talk. Do you think Willie killed himself? If he did, he could have done it right here. He didn't need no pool. He hated water. Could he swim? It's not if somebody's holding your head under. Good point, Joey. Who did it to him? I heard of you, Roper. I know you're seen. Hell, if you don't know who did it to Willie, we all got trouble. I need a lead, Joey. Anything. Anybody. You got one already. Willie's wife? I don't think so. You've been to Clayton's, haven't you? You mean the daughter, Pam? No, you're cooking. Only don't ask me why, because I don't know. Were they close? Willie and Pam Clayton? That's your business. Find out. Joey Zale was right. It was my business. I started out by trying to find the H. Masson who had Pam Clayton's 10.30 appointment at the Gilded Cuckoo. No dice. No listing. No nothing. I called the Claytons. They were out, and the Scandinavian maid told me Pam hadn't come back. I was going in a circle, so I decided to get home and start over again. When I walked into my apartment in Santa Monica, the phone was ringing. Roper here. Max, Allie Regal. Say, I heard something about Willie and Pam Clayton. Like what? Like maybe they had a thing for each other? So I've heard. Uh, tell me something about Mrs. Clayton. <laughs> What's to tell? A lot of money, doesn't like a stepdaughter. Yeah. Something else, Allie. I got the strangest feeling I know her. <laughs> of course you do. That's Monica Moore. Pretty big movie star 15 years ago. Mostly B-pictures. A career went down the drain. Men, mostly. A lot of booze, maybe some drugs. Uh, a few bad marriages. Thanks, Allie. Uh, let me know if you get a lead on Pam Clayton, will you? Yeah, I was going to ask you to do the same. 
After I hung up, I called on a theatrical agent pal of mine, Sid Pinter. Asked him what he could tell me about Monica Moore. I struck gold. He had a complete file on her. A stack of old 8 by 10 publicity stills. He's been out of pictures a long time, Sid. How come you have these photos? Me? I'm a string saver. I, I save junk. Memories. Hmm. Uh, this picture, who's the guy with it? Oh, that's uh, Johnny Hunter, her first husband. Family-owned part of Texas and half of Wyoming. Here, here's number two, the cowboy star, Rex Lennox. Oh, yeah, I remember Yeah, that, that didn't last long. Uh, and this is number three, the hotel man, you know, Chilson, Charles Chilson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she got a big bundle from him. And this is number four, Muscles, Lance Kite, former Mr. America, Mr. Universe. I suppose that one didn't last long either. Nah, all he had was his muscle flexing act. Well, after him, it was all downhill for Monica. She quit show business. Got into religion instead, astral and cosmic magnetism. You should excuse the expression. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Uh, let's see, it was Charnick. Yeah, Lewis Charnick. He gave public lectures, helped you find the miracle in your life. You know, that kind of nonsense. Monica Moore joined up with Charnick? Well, it was more like she backed him. Uh, you know, a lot of people take that stuff seriously. Anyway, uh, that's about all I know. I, I haven't heard a word from or about her since. She's in Clover, said. Big oil man, number five, Tyler Clayton. Oh, well, I'm glad. She was a beautiful kid. They racked her up good in this town. You know, the scandal nearly ruined her. What scandal? The first husband killed himself. Johnny Hunter? Yeah, sleeping pills, overdosed. Oh. Is this uh, China character still operating? I see his name in the paper time to time. Thanks, Sid. See you around. Yeah, well, don't thank me. Every time you come here for some cockamamie information, somebody jumps you and knocks your head in. Not this time. I'm investigating the death of Willie Rich. The jockey? What's Monica Moore got to do with that? I don't know. Maybe nothing. It's just that Monica's stepdaughter disappeared the same day Willie Rich was murdered. I'm trying to find out who killed Willie and locate the girl. You should live so long. I was nursing a beer in my digs a little later, and I was flipping through the entertainment section of the local sheet, wondering how I was going to kill the evening when I came across the ad. Charnock, tonight, Wilshire Playhouse, 8 o'clock. There was a picture of Charnock on the wall in the playhouse lobby. He looked young, tall, dark, and handsome. The lights dimmed, and a chunky, broad-shouldered man dressed in white came out of the wings and sat down at the organ. Then the spotlight came on, and Charnock appeared. He wasn't young like the picture in the lobby, around 50. His eyes were dark, intense, his voice mellifluous, and he knew how to use it. Didn't waste a word. He knew where the money was. The large audience was still and attentive. When the lecture was over, I got out as fast as I could. I waited near the alley where I could watch the back entrance. A big black limousine was parked there, a burly, tough-looking driver behind the wheel. In a few minutes, Charnock came out, got into the car, and it started forward. As it slowly passed by, I saw there was a passenger in the back seat. A female passenger, none other than Monica Clayton. So, Charnock and Monica... And Willie Rich and Pam Clayton. Two here and two gone. I was getting another one of those feelings. Didn't like it much. It felt like murder. With more to come. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes. 
And listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Princess Stakes Murder. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Kim Platt's The Princess Stakes Murder was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubon. Howard Duff is Roper. Julie Adams is Monica. And Ray Danton is Charnock. Featured in the cast are Jack Crucian as Regal, Deborah Wally as Penny, Denver Pyle as Clayton, Robert Easton as Glendon, Walter Tetley as Zale, and Herb Vigran as Pinter. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kim Platt's Gymkhana Fall Play. The Princess Stakes Murder. Starring Howard Duff, Julie Adams, and Ray Danton. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Jockey Willie Rich rode home, the favorite, for a big win at Del Mar Racetrack. He celebrated by turning up the next morning in his swimming pool, dead. An accident? Private Detective Max Roper doesn't think so. He has the feeling that it was murder. 
and has set out to prove just that. To the blonde, shapely widow, whose first condolence visitor is a knife-toting underworld enforcer. To Tyler Clayton, oil man, horse owner, and the late jockey's employer, whose debutante daughter is missing. To Clayton's wife, Monica, a former B-picture movie star with a string of ex-husbands and a current involvement with a metaphysical quack named Louis Charnock. And to a health spa that features a machine called the Isotron, a machine that Max Roper has the feeling could break a man in half. The Princess Stakes murder resumes after this message. It was Tuesday morning and I was back at the EPT offices on Wilshire Boulevard. EPT meaning Emergency Procedure Terminus. It stands for Big Troubles and the Solutions Thereof. My boss asked me how my weekend was. I told him. I told him, too, that Willie was a friend of mine. He gave me one week to wrap the whole thing up. I started at LAPD. Captain Scott, head of Bunko and Forgery, didn't keep me waiting, and I didn't waste his time. Charnock, Lewis Charnock. Uh, we've had an eye on him for 20 years. There have been a few complaints, but nothing we could hit him with and make it stick. You know this town, it's always gone for quacks and saviors. What kind of complaints? Then again, you'd be surprised how many people swear that Charnock's given them inspiration and reason for living. Uh, I repeat, what kind of complaints? Uh, standard. He gets good play with donations. There's another man in the operation. Wesley Dorn works with Charnock. Does bookings, takes care of travel, publicity, promotion, greets the little old ladies, plays the organ background music. Yeah, I saw him. Chunky, broad-shouldered, dressed all in white. What about him? Well, Dorn handles the money end. Keeps Charnock always in the clear. Always? Well, we nearly had him nailed seven years ago. Dorn or Charnock? It doesn't matter. I see it as Charnock's operation. Anyway, seven years back, a fellow claimed Charnock broke up his marriage. Claimed a 529. Extortion? Yeah. But the wife refused to sign the complaint. The guy claimed that half the dough his wife shelled out was his. Unity property. Sounds more like a civil action. Did he get half the money back? It was his wife's income. He wasn't working. Apparently, he settled out of court. The guy ever get his wife back? Nope. What was his name? You might be able to give me a line. Lance Kite. Hmm. Number four. Four what? He wasn't the first for Monica Moore Clayton. Johnny Hunter, an actor, was number one. Then Rex Lennox, the cowboy. A hotel man named Chilson, number three. The muscle man, Lance Kite, was number four. Now she's married to Tyler Clayton. Lots of bucks. Do you have Kite's last address in that file? I'll write it down. Okay. Now to get back to Willie Rich. I checked with homicide. So far, his death is listed as an accidental drowning. I'm trying to prove otherwise. And I got another problem. Pam Clayton, missing heiress. Here's a picture of statistics. Hmm. Sure, that pretty ought to be right up your alley, Roper. Shouldn't take you more than a few days. Hmm, how do you figure? I haven't got much to go on. Sure, yeah. Incentive. Lance Kite had moved from the address he'd given the Bunko Squad. He was now living in an apartment house in a ratty section of West Los Angeles with a good view of the city storm drain. Whatever Monica's out-of-court settlement had been, it was no windfall. Yeah. I'd seen his picture and knew he was ex-Mr. Universe, but still I was not prepared for his bulk. My height, but a 50-inch chest. Life had got to him, though, and booze. 
I could see it in his face and smell it on his breath. He was still big, but soft and flabby now, maybe 10, 20 pounds over his best. He needed to shave, his eyes were red, and he wasn't cheerful. What do you want? Landskite? What about it? Uh, mind if I ask a few questions? It's private business. Can we talk inside? I talk good right here. I'm uh, trying to get some information about Louis Charnock. I believe you registered a complaint against him with the Bunko Squad. You were married to Monica Moore at the time. Who are you? Name's Roper, private investigator. I understand she left you for Charnock. I'm trying to find out if he's on the level of running a racket. I'd like to nail him. You wouldn't mind that, would you? Uh, I'd have to think about it. Okay, no hurry. I uh, heard you dropped your complaint suddenly. Mind telling me why? Sure. It's none of your business. Is that clear enough? Fine. First rate. Thanks for your time. Hold it. Hold it. Did, uh, did Monica send you? Monica? No, eh? But you seen her around. Yes. Maybe you'll see her again, eh? Maybe you can give her a message for me. Maybe. Okay. Give her this. A heavily muscled 20-inch arm launched from deep in his living room in a long, sweeping arc at my chin. It should have torn my head off, but my old judo and karate instructor had prepared me well for just such chance encounters. I moved my head to the right and used left forefist upper block, revolving my blocking arm in a short counter arc. Inverted fists strike to the spleen and kite sagged and wretched. I caught all the fumes from his morning's worth of beer. He was set up perfectly for a rising elbow strike, but I was fascinated by his long, vulnerable jaw and tagged him on it to find out if it was glass. It was, and Kite sat down with a look of hurt surprise. I dropped my business card under his gaping mouth. Uh, drop around to see me, Kite, uh, when you feel better. A woman had come out of a neighboring apartment. She stood staring, disbelieving how anyone could drop an ex-Mr. Universe. I summed it up for her in one word. Incentive. I phoned the box office of the Wilshire Park Playhouse. The attendant hesitated when I asked where Mr. Charnock was living on the town. I explained it concerned a large donation to his cause. I got the address. The Regency Arms is a good apartment hotel off Wilshire along the old Miracle Mile. The clerk told me Charnock had the penthouse. A small self-service elevator worked its way to the top. The suite had double doors. A big, burly man filled the threshold. His hair was close-cropped yellow. He had a flat, dented nose, scar tissue over his eyes and ears, an ex-pug wrestler or bouncer. I recognized him as the man driving the limousine the night I saw Monica Clayton and Charnock in the car after his lecture. I handed the bouncer-cum-butler my business card. It read, Anthony Hale, attorney at law. Uh, tell Mr. Charnock's about a donation Mrs. Casper may have called it concerns her estate. I'll wait. The big bruiser didn't say a word. Just walked across the sitting room to a closed door at the far end, knocked, and entered. While I waited, I studied the brochures on psychic power and cosmic thoughts and was deep in reading how to create my own good luck. When the door opened, the bruiser summoned me by tilting his anvil-shaped head. Mr. Hale, it's difficult for me to see people without an appointment. My time is limited. There are so many in need. I understand, Mr. Charlie, but the matter of Mrs. Casper's estate concerns you. I have with me an affidavit signed by Mrs. Casper. 
Mrs. Casper, I don't believe I've seen her name in our guest book. The matter of her will is a sensitive one. I'm sure you understand. There's the utmost need for discretion. You say that Mrs. Casper has come to my lecture? Many times, but she's never given her correct name. Family, you understand? But why all this caution? Very well. Quite bluntly, Mrs. Casper does not have long to live. Her death is not only predictable, but imminent. Her bequest to you must be anonymous, because the present heirs would not welcome this dispersal of the estate they somehow conceive of being their rightful inheritance. Well, that presents no problem. But there was a good deal of notoriety about that other woman once, wasn't there? Let's see. Her name was, um... Uh, Monica Moore, yes, the former movie star. The matter of her husband's contesting the disposal of her monies. Remember, it was all in the papers, Mr. China. One moment, please. Our cosmic thoughts are not in tune. Let me concentrate a moment. Mm. Uh, no, this is a difficult matter. Perhaps you should speak to my associate. Don't bother, Lewis. It's a waste of time. The gentleman will be leaving. The voice on the intercom belonged to the man who now stood in the doorway. Dorn, the organist, business manager, general factotum for Charnock. Alongside him was the bruiser. It says Anthony Hale on this card. There must be some mistake. The name is Roper, isn't it? Whatever gave you that idea? The cosmic mind. I started to close the snap on the attaché case on my knees. The gun changed my mind. I handed the case over to Dorn. He opened it, lifted out the small tape recorder, switched the on button to rewind, spun the tape, wiped it out. He nodded to the bruiser, who fell in two steps behind me. With his gun in my ribs, I went obediently to the elevator. But as I left Charnock's office, I could hear a slapping sound and an exclamation of pain. The gun prodded my back. As the elevator door closed and I started down, I thought back to that brochure about making your own good luck. Guess I hadn't read enough of it. Well, you win one, you lose one. I called Allie Regal to see if he had any news about Pam Clayton, the missing heiress. She's still missing, unless you manage to find her. Well, they told me at the Gilded Cuckoo she never kept her beauty appointment Monday morning that, in fact, she didn't even have one. Incidentally, is that spa legit? Yeah, as far as I know. Allie, I'm batting zero. Come up with something, anything. Well, Penny Rich has complained that their house had been broken into and ransacked again. Again? Well, when did it happen before? A few nights before Willie was knocked off. Two break-ins? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sounds like Willie had something somebody wanted and still wants. If he knew about it and didn't let on, then he had a pat hand and was sitting tight. Maybe we finally have something, Allie. Motive. I hung up and wondered if the first ransacking of Willie's house had been the reason for his calling me. It was a new element to consider. I thought about that and suddenly thought about something else I should have thought about and hadn't. I called the Gilded Cuckoo, but the regular receptionist wasn't there. The gal I talked to had just been transferred from therapy. I remembered her. The regular girl, Bonnie Burns, was on vacation, she said. Left Monday. I explained it was important that I reach her and got her address. Tahoe, the Totem Lodge. Are you sure you have the right number, Mr. Roper? I don't need a detective. I have a few questions, Miss Burns. This won't take long. Well, okay. I've already had my swim. What do you want to know? Like how it is up here in Tahoe? Dull, that's out. No, oh, sorry about that. Uh, did uh, Pamela Clayton have an appointment at the Cuckoo Monday morning, Labor Day? Sure. Monday's her standing appointment. Hairstyling with Mr. K. She came in right on time. 
Oh. Uh, then a Mr. H. Masson didn't take her place? No, never heard of him. Uh-huh. Well, was uh, Mrs. Clayton ever a patient under treatment for anything? You'd have to ask Mr. Glendon about that. We're not allowed to... I'd like to fly up there tonight, get a statement from you. Tonight? Crazy. I look forward to it. Uh, uh, Bonnie, do you always uh, take your vacation at this time? No, but I was overdue, and, and all of a sudden they said business was slow and I should take off. Uh, would that be Mr. Glendon? Yes. You know him? When did he decide it was all right for you to start your vacation? It was Monday, Labor Day, right after lunch. Hey, you sound sexy. Ask me the questions when you get up here. You, uh, look as good as you sound? Uh, better not depend on it. Try cabin five when you get here. We'll find out. When I got to the totem lodge, cabin five had the light on and the door open. It seemed a nice, hospitable gesture. I knocked on the door. Bonnie? I got that odd, cold feeling and walked in. I took Pam Clayton's photo from my pocket and was disturbed by her resemblance to Bonnie Burns. Same age, similar coloring. They could have passed for sisters. I stared at a blonde wig set up in her dressing table and wondered if she'd worn it recently. She wasn't wearing it now. Bonnie Burns was a redhead, and the redhead was dead. Sprawled on the floor in a pool of her own blood. A long knife buried in her back. The local sheriff's office said they'd get a man out. I flushed a cab to the airport and learned there'd been earlier flights out to Reno, San Francisco, and Vegas. The killer needn't have waited around for me, but I had the feeling, one of those feelings, that the killer would be on my flight back to L.A. The plane was fueling up on the runway. Six other passengers boarded the plane, two women, four men. One of the women had the seat next to her piled high with bags, baskets, containers of all sorts. I put her down as a grandmother visiting a newly married daughter with a lot of groceries for the family. The second woman was dark and bulky, her face half covered with a scarf and wearing a thick, high-collared coat. She constantly hummed and talked to herself as she stared out the seat window. She had a big ball of wool in the seat and knitting needles, scissors, and magazines. Another nut going to join the relatives. I spoke to the men, an elderly reverend gentleman, long retired from the cloth, he said, out of Tahoe City. The second was a chubby salesman of electric lighting fixtures who had negotiated a big deal on animated neons with the large casinos. The third, a ranger from Sequoia National Park, quitting the service after 20 years. The fourth was a satin and dental surgeon from San Diego who said he was dying of cancer at 43. He looked older. I was the seventh passenger, the only one aboard who looked like a murderer. Well, sometimes those feelings are wrong. I knew I had the feeling, but maybe this was one of those times. When we put down at L.A. International, the women got off first. The one with the groceries headed for the first phone booth. The humming eccentric with the knitting needles went for the ladies' room. The retired reverend and the ranger picked up their luggage from the spinning drop in the baggage room. The lighting salesman grabbed his briefcase and headed for the bar. The dental surgeon and I went directly to the exit and cab stands. I let him have the first one that came along because he was dying and in more of a hurry. I got back to my apartment and smelled whiskey and trouble. The door had been forced, the living room attacked by a strong, bad-tempered visitor. 
I know who, even before I found the note from Lance Kite on my TV set saying he'd get back to me. I pulled the place more or less together, had a few drinks, and went to bed. Even in my dreams, I ran around, knocking on the wrong doors, bumping into things, stumbling over dead bodies. Willie kept following me, asking me when I was going to solve his murder. Homicide, Lieutenant Camino. Uh, Lieutenant Max Roper. Did uh, Captain Scott from Bunko fit in? Oh, yeah, Roper. Have you turned up anything? Another corpse. Young woman, hunting knife in her back. Happened last night, up in Tahoe. Why the hell did you call me sooner? Well, uh, that's Placer County, out of your jurisdiction. But I was wondering if you'd uh, check out the blade. Hunting knife, ivory handle, not Johnny Cascio's usual style. Yeah, I still... could check him out for you. What else? Louis Charnock. Does he kill anybody? I'd like to believe it. But so far, he just seems guilty of perpetrating fraud. I'm getting nowhere fast on this caper. Can't seem to close in. Well, what do you expect, hot shot? You want to break it in three days? You know better than that. Get off your tail. Do some leg work. Jim Kilburn was one of the new breed of young whiz 10 percenters, an agent who handles athletes. Willie Rich had been one of his superstars. Come on, who'd want to kill Willie? Look, look at the file I've got on him. How much money he made for how many owners. You make a good point, Kilburn, but there are other factors. What about the disappearance of Clayton's daughter? I don't see the connection. Well, she and Willie Rich had been seeing each other. So what? I took her out a couple of times. Well, you're not married. Willie was. You're saying Penny could have done it? Forget it. Business managers have been known to pick up an extra few bucks with clients' money. Maybe you did it. Maybe I did, but I can't seem to remember the reason. All right, I'll tell you one thing. Willie and I were discussing money these days because he didn't want to ride for Clayton anymore. He was willing to buy back the advance and the contract. When did he tell you this? About a month ago, before the Del Mar meeting started. Willie could have made over a million if he cared to ride what was available, and I'd make my 10%, of course. I think he was bored, been riding too long. Why would I kill him? I made money off of him. Did anybody else know Willie didn't want to ride anymore? No, and not to my knowledge, not even Clayton. Where were you on Labor Day, Kilburn? Not killing Willie. I was in San Francisco negotiating a deal. All day? All night? What hours are you interested in? I understand he was killed at 10. I was at L.A. International at 8.05. That left me just enough time to fly down to Escondido and knock Willie off in his pool. Possible. I know you fly your own plane, but I guess you didn't because you had a previous engagement, hmm? Correct. You're not going to tell me it was with Pam Clayton. I'm not telling you another damn thing. How high up are we? 23 floors. Why? Either you tell me where you were after 8 Monday night, or I'm going to throw you right out the window. What are you, some kind of psycho? Let's find out, shall we? No, wait, 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 wait. wait. I'll, I'll tell you, but look, I wouldn't want it to get around. I... My lips are sealed. If this gets out, I will sue you for defamation. I'm again. waiting, Kilburn. I was, uh, I was at the, uh, the Golden Grotto. Oh, I didn't know you were gay. I'm not. I need a Jess Haywood signature on a contract. You mean Haywood, the quarterback? I swear, if you spread this around... One more thing. Did uh, Willie ever go to the Gilded Cuckoo, that spa in Poway? Yeah, I think so, once in a while, to take off a few pounds. What's the connection? Maybe Bonnie Burns, a receptionist. I found her murdered last night up at Lake Tahoe. Knife in her back. Oh, my God. Look, I, I, I wish I could help you. I, I really do. Here. Here, take this list. People Willie worked for, you know, wins, losses... Kilburn was the color of wet chalk. I left him frantically mopping his brow. There were a lot of owners and trainers on the list he gave me with better records than Tyler Clayton, but Clayton was the only one whose daughter vanished the same day that Willie drowned, and that fact sent me back to the Clayton estate. 
I eased into the driveway and was starting for the front door. I ducked low, ran around a thick hedge toward the sound of shots. Tyler Clayton stood facing a small outdoor shooting range, firing at a full front dummy. I watched his face. He enjoyed it. I got the impression, the feeling, that Tyler Clayton could kill with no trouble at all. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Princess Stakes Murder. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Kim Platt's The Princess Stakes Murder was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Duboff. Howard Duff is Roper. Julie Adams is Monica. And Ray Danton is Charna. Featured in the cast are Tyler McVeigh as Scott, Peter Leeds as Kite, Greg Malavy as Kilburn, Linda K. Henning as Bonnie, and Luke Krugman as Camino. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kim Platt's Gymkhana Full Play. The Princess Stakes Murder. Starring Howard Duff, Julie Adams, and Ray Danton. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour.
Private Detective Max Roper went to Delmar at the request of a friend to watch the running of the Princess Stakes. His friend, jockey Willie Rich, scored a win, but placed out of the money. He showed up a day later, dead. And in his quest to find out why, Max Roper has met a most peculiar array of characters. Among them, two bunco artists, a former Mr. Universe, and a hostile athlete's agent. And he arranged to meet a young girl in Lake Tahoe, who he had known only as a voice on the telephone. But she had nothing to say, because she was dead. Then on the plane back to L.A., Roper met a half-dozen strange passengers. One, perhaps, the killer. Max Roper has his work cut out for him. Two unsolved murders, a missing heiress... And he's about to confront a man with a pistol who's firing bullets into a target. The target is the full front figure of a man. The Princess Stakes murder will continue after this. It looked like graduation day at FBI school. Boxes and clips of ammunition were stacked on a range table. An automatic 12-gauge shotgun and various expensive-looking handguns, sight scopes, and holsters. Several framed targets with the bullseye centers well perforated with accurate fire had been discarded and leaned against the side. It told me that rugged individualist Tyler Clayton had no intention of calling in the authorities to find his daughter. He could do the job himself. That last was pure show-off. Clayton had known I was standing there all along. He spun the gun like Billy the Kid, turned to me and extended the gun butt first. A handsome Colt Python 357 Magnum. A gun developed for police use. Its load would penetrate both armor and glass. Care to try your luck, son? No, thanks, Mr. Clayton. I can't get mad at a target. Not today, anyway. A drink, then. Well, let's eat bourbon, wasn't it? Heard anything from your daughter? Not a word. Nothing? You got it right, son. Nothing. It took me by surprise the way he whirled toward the target and snapped off a quick shot from the hip and put a hole an inch to the right of the black center X. Then, just as quickly, he was back to his drink, grinning. He reloaded and slipped the shooter into a shoulder rig holster and jerked it into place. You carry that gun on you usually? Sometimes. Happens to be a pretty deadly weapon. One of the few handguns around that can surely kill a man. I know, son. You can't be certain yet your daughter's been kidnapped. You might kill somebody by mistake. When I kill somebody, son, it's no mistake. Grew up with a gun in my hands. Uh, Where would that be, Texas? Hell no, not Texas, Saskatchewan. Canada? Yes, sir. Grew up there. Did plenty of hunting when we were kids, me and my brothers. Lots of game up there, son. Rabbits? Rabbits, fox, moose, bear. Got my first grizzly with a handgun when I was 14. That was a kill, boy. That was some kill. You have to be pretty crazy to tangle with a grizzly with it. I'm wondering, would you take a chance like that today? Hell yeah. Been a hunter all my life. Oh, Hello, sweetheart. Good to see you again, Mr. Roper. Good to see you too, Mrs. Clayton. Again. Was that you shooting, Tyler? You know it was me. Who else could it be? Mr. Roper, have you found Pam? Is that what you want? Of course. Well, I wasn't sure. All I got from you was a little four-by-five picture off the desk. Apart from that, neither of you gave me anything that would help. No description, no background. I assume she's gone to school, had some boy or girlfriends. At 22, she's bound to have some habits. She must go places. Really, Mr. Now, Roper? listen here, boy. Don't call me boy, and you listen. With your kind of power, if you took your daughter's disappearance seriously, you'd have brought in the Marines by now. 
You know what, Mr. Clayton? I don't think you want your kid found. Not yet, anyway. If so, that's your business. But you're playing a dangerous game, like hunting. Now, I told you I wanted her found, and I want her found. Just because you've been dragging your heels don't mean you, you, can, you can turn on me. What's holding you up, money? My, money, get my checkbook. Don't bother. Let me tell you how I spent last evening finding a murdered girl up in Tahoe. She wasn't your daughter, but she could have been. So your money is no guarantee your kid will be found alive. I don't feel well. You'll feel worse when I tell you the dead girl lived around here, worked at your favorite spa, the Gilded Cuckoo. Know her, Mrs. Clayton? The receptionist, Bonnie Burns? Bonnie? Dead? Was she drowned? Like Willie Rich? No, she never made it to the lake. The knife in her back slowed her down. Now, look what you've done. You've upset my wife. Now, maybe this Bonnie did work at the spa, so what? What the hell are you driving at anyway? She could have been murdered by mistake. About the same age as your daughter. Looks some like her, too, judging from the picture I have. The thing that puzzles me, although she was a natural redhead, Bonnie Burns had a blonde wig. And there are other things that don't ring right. She left the gilded cuckoo on her vacation Monday afternoon about the same time your daughter was supposed to be there. I don't know why she wore the blonde wig. Maybe the killer didn't know either. Maybe he thought she was your daughter when he put the knife into her back. Oh, why don't you go inside, Monica? You're looking mighty pale. Clayton, make Mr. Roper understand that Pam never did get to the spa for her hair appointment. They told me she hadn't been there at all on Monday, didn't even have an appointment. She lied to me when she said that's where she was going. couple things we ought to clear up, Mrs. Clayton. Your stepdaughter had a standing appointment at the spa. How did you... And Bonnie Burns was at her reception desk at the Gilded Cuckoo that morning. If Pam came in and did keep her appointment, Bonnie saw her. If somebody there wanted that kept a secret, they've made sure of it. Bonnie can't tell anybody now whether your daughter was there or not. If you're telling the truth, I'll go down there and tear that place apart. I'll... Wait. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. There's an easy way to check these things. They keep appointment books, don't they? We'll just go down there and check the records. If someone wanted your daughter kept out of the way, they'd also be smart enough to fix up the appointment book. It wouldn't be difficult. It's a loose-leaf affair. I don't understand. Why would anybody want Tyler's daughter kept out of the way? Maybe she knows something. That's bull. What would she know? When I find her, I'll ask her if she's still alive. I left the Claytons, the beautiful people. He stood there tall, wearing his invincible look, arm around his wife. I felt the whole scene we just played had been just that, a scene, not a shred of truth in it. Clayton couldn't see his wife's face, but I could. It was pressed tight against his chest, and on it was a familiar look. The same tense, frightened expression I'd seen outside the Wilshire Playhouse in the back seat of the car she was sharing with Lewis Charnock. I headed for Pacific Coast Highway, wondering when I'd get a break in this case, a lead to something tangible. At the edge of the village, I found it. A new shopping center sprawled over a large city block. I recognized a slim, dark-haired girl putting her groceries into the rear of a red station wagon. I drove into the lot. Hello. Aren't you the Clayton's maid? Maid, yeah. Cook, too. And now I'm shopping for dinner. You are the policeman who came the other day, no? Uh, detective, I- I'd like to ask you some questions, Miss... Uh... Pauli. Pauli Lundgren. You have no word of Miss Pam yet? It would help if you'd tell me about her. 
What can I tell? I'm working there just past one year. Since the other Mrs. Clayton died. Uh, what did the other Mrs. Clayton die of? In the heart, I think. Mm, you were there when she died? Yes, the last month. My father in Sweden was a doctor, and so I know about being a nurse. I helped out, and Miss Pam liked me, and I liked her, and so I stayed on. Did uh, Miss Pam ever disappear like this before? Disappear? No. She was away to college. She's not just graduated. I thought all Swedish maids said yeast. They are the ones from Denmark. <laughs> I see. Uh, how did Pam get along with her new mother? It is not right I should talk about the people I work for. I'm trying to help Pam, don't you see? If I can't learn something about her, I have no way to find her. Help me, Polly. I lie. I try. Good. Was she unhappy since her father remarried? Not right away, but yes, in a few months. They did not talk to each other so much, like strangers, I think. Tell me, Polly, has anything happened at the Clayton house recently that struck you as strange, uh, out of the ordinary, different? I do not have much time. I am expected at the house. Polly, please, think. Anything different? Well, there was the letters. They made Mr. Clayton very angry. Letters? When was this? Soon after they got married, after Mrs. Monica came into the house. Addressed to Mr. Clayton? Yes. They came regularly, once a month. Would you know what was in them? How would I know that? Does he read his letters to his housemaid? Try to remember. Was there a return address? No. But they are made from Mexico. This, I notice, a very strange stamp. Uh-huh. You, you said Mr. Clayton became angry. Did he say anything you recall? Something. One time, about how he was not going to let somebody twist him around a finger. Did he discuss the letters with Mrs. Clayton? Oh, I have not heard this, but lately they have not been no more. Do you think they may have concerned his daughter? Please, if I do not get back to the house... Now, just another minute, Polly. There's more, isn't there? More you're not telling me. All right. The telephone calls. At first for the master, but he becomes very angry, shouts loud and hangs up. And later the calls would come again. But this time he would ask for Miss Clayton, Pam. Did Pam speak to the caller? Only one time. But just for a moment, her father heard. He came into the room, red in the face and shouting. He almost breaks the telephone. He puts it down so hard. Then he's telling her she's not to take any more calls from this person. And that's it? There is some more. A few weeks ago, two weeks, a man came to the house, a stranger. Yeah? He's looking around very carefully. He asks, is Miss Clayton home? Pamela, he says, not Pam. I say the truth, she's not. And then he asks when Mr. and Mrs. Clayton will be home, and I tell him they have gone to look at some horses. Did he give his name? He's about to. Then he changes his mind, and he writes something very fast on a piece of paper from a notebook. He gives it to me and says, please, it is for Miss Pamela. Did you see what he wrote? A telephone number. I left it on the dresser in her room, but I think she did not get it. Why? Clayton get there first? I think it was Mrs. Monica. I'm not sure, but she was upstairs. And when I asked Miss Pam later if she got a note, she said, What note? And then she becomes very pale, very quiet. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what this stranger looked like? A big man, like you, but uh, more thin in, thin in the stomach. <laughs> you seem to concur with the diagnosis of the gilded cuckoo. I beg pardon? Uh, never mind. What kind of car did he drive? Oh, no car. He came by taxi. It waits for him. And now I must hurry back to prepare dinner. Well, one more question, Polly. Labor Day, Monday. Where were Mr. and Mrs. Clayton that evening? At home. We had a very big party. 
He wins an imported horse race, no? Uh, Willie Rich won it. Was uh, Pam Clayton at the party? No, no, and I go now. All right, Polly. Oh, I just remember something. Uh, yes, isn't so bad if what you remember is important. I know what the man said when he was leaving. To the cabbie, he said it. Okay, back to the rover house, he said. Uh-huh, one more favor, Polly. Don't tell anyone what you just told me. Okay, now... You will find Miss Pam? Yes, as soon as I can. The Rover House was on the outskirts of Old Delmar. I asked the beauty behind the registration desk if anybody had blown in from Mexico within the past few weeks. We have a Mr. Hunter, Mr. Thomas Hunter from Acapulco. Is he in? I'm sorry, sir, no. Has he checked out? No, he just hasn't been here. What do you mean? I really don't know, sir. He left early one morning and didn't come back. Which morning? Labor Day. Delmar was yawning, getting up and ready for another day. The hay smelled sweet as I walked past the stalls. The sleekly groomed horses whinnied and pawed the ground nervously. I couldn't see what they had to be nervous about. They weren't running behind two unsolved murders and a missing person. Joey Zale was taping a nag's foreleg. He glanced up and smiled crookedly when he saw me in the stall opening. This one's a real lady. Never tries to kick me. Can we talk, Joey? Sure. Come on outside. Let's have a cigarette. How's it going? Getting anywhere? If I am, I don't know about it. Uh, tell me, did Pam Clayton spend much time down here? Yeah, quite a bit. We got that filly of hers, you know, Mary Jane. Good two-year-old. How did she act? Uh, throw her weight around, really? Nah, that kid never made waves. You'd never know she was worth a zillion on the hoof. Nobody knows she was alive. They still don't. She'll turn up. It's only been three days. I found one last night that only took 12 hours. A stiff? Kid from around here. Shiving her back. All right, Joey, let's have it. You've been holding out. You're punchy. What would I know? I understand a stranger's blown into town. Been trying to contact Clayton's daughter. I figure a smart operator would track her down here once he found out horses are her hobby. There's more, Joey. This dude came straight from Mexico. He checked in at the Rover house. He's been trying to see Pam. He's also been missing since Labor Day morning. All right. Anytime you're ready, Joey. Willie set it up. I don't think the dude's exactly a stranger. I think Willie knew him from way back. Willie set what up? The guy came down here a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if he met Clayton's kid here or not. All I know about is Labor Day, and I know about that because Willie told me. Well, clear it up for me. It's still muddy. Well, the Clayton kid had a morning appointment at the Gilded Cuckoo Spa out in Poway. Willie must have set it up for the dude to meet her here and forgot about her beauty parlor bit. So, Willie drops over here early that morning to give me a message to forward to the guy that she wasn't stiffing him on purpose, but that she had this other operation going, see? Was the guy's name Hunter? Yeah, I guess so. Seems old man Clayton wasn't keen about them getting together. So, like I said, Willie set it up. Hunter shows up here a little after ten. He looks put out when the kid isn't here. So I told him what Willie said. He took off right away. With the gilded cuckoo? To meet her there? He didn't say. He just split. She's been missing since. Hunter, too. You think they went off together? Beats the hell out of me. He was old enough to be her old man. Maybe he was an uncle or something. Might have acted like one. The other Mrs. Clayton's brother? If you ask me, he looked more like Clayton. Describe him. 
Tall man, thin, big hands, in his 50s, tough looking, could have been a fighter. Knife scar on his cheek, his nose is broke. Kind of quiet, though, didn't talk much. You sized him up pretty good. Funny you didn't mention him before. Well, you know how it is. No, I don't, but go on. You're saying Willie set it up. Now, what I have to know is, did Clayton's kid want to meet him? Did she ever meet him? I can't give it up, pal, but I figure Willie was straight. If he said it was okay, then it was okay. It's good to hear you speaking well of Willie. After he took away a pretty good record you once rang up. Ah, records. You know what's not in the books? When I was all busted up, Willie paid the hospital bills. Willie got me the job here. Maybe it don't look like much, but horses are my life. And I still got one mark up. Willie would have taken it for sure, but he's gone now. I still got that, whatever good it does me. Does you a lot of good, Joey, if you didn't knock off Willie. Which reminds me, you were supposed to be working on that one. But you're spending all your time looking for Clayton's kid. Maybe you're being faked out on that play. Maybe. Tell me, did Pam Clayton ever come here with a girl about her age named Bonnie Burns? Redhead? Not that I remember. Why? She's the one somebody knifed up in Tahoe last night. She worked at the Gilded Cuckoo. Then what are you doing here? Business hadn't slowed noticeably at the Gilded Cuckoo, judging from the number of cars lining the parking lot. I was becoming irritated with the missing girl, with the Clayton's unorthodox approach toward handling it, and with myself for becoming involved with a case that didn't make any sense. I took my light traveling bag out of my car and walked through the heavy, gilded doors again. The leggy, gray-eyed Miss Hill, whom I'd seen at the reception desk before, was gone. In her place was another of the same mold, young, cute, and friendly. Hello. Where's Bonnie? Bonnie? Uh, Bonnie Burns. She used to work here. Oh, I couldn't tell you. I'm new here. Uh, What about Miss Hill? Is she around? I think she went back to therapy. Do you have an appointment? A standing one. I I should be on the books. I spoke to Mr. Glendon the other day, said I might be back for some of the courses. Oh, you mean a living. I don't know if we have a vacancy. Do you know for how long? Well, it all depends. I suppose Mr. Glendon would know more about it. Well, just a minute. I'll ask. Mr. Glendon? Mr. Roper's here. He said he's a living, but I don't have him on the books. He said... Oh, yes, sir. I'll tell him. He'll be right out, Mr. Roper. Why don't you sit over there? Thank you. Oh, Mr. Roper. Uh, now, do I understand correctly that you are serious this time? Well, I was serious the other time, but I had to make sure I could take a holiday from my outfit. I understand. I don't believe you told me what business you were in. Insurance. Uh, the company doctor told me I was ten pounds overweight. That's when I decided to do something about it. Well, I don't think you have much of a problem. A week or two, hard exercise, limited diet, our mineral water, pleasant surroundings, no liquor, no smoking. Now, is that agreeable to you? Agreeable. Uh, what do I do, pay now, a down payment? Oh, don't concern yourself. We'll send you a bill. Ernie, uh, take Mr. Roper's bag through this door, Mr. Roper. We'll, we'll get you settled. Oh, by the way, uh, that uh, girl you asked about last time, Miss uh, uh, Clayton... I, I suppose she's returning home by now. I imagine so. I've been so busy, I haven't had a chance to check. Well, there you are. It never pays to get excited over these things. Probably all a little misunderstanding. Oh, uh, probably. Well, here we are. It's a small room, but uh, more than adequate. Bars of the window? Oh, you'd be surprised how desperate these dipsos get for a drink. They'll try any means of escape. 
Uh, now, Mr. Roper, if you just take off your clothes and uh, put on these pajamas. At this time of day? Well, your clothing will be returned to you. You understand, of course, that we must remove all incentives for you to leave if the going gets tough. Uh, you can put your clothes in here. Uh, Ernie will help you. With that, he walked out, leaving me with Ernie, who could have passed for King Kong's twin brother. Ernie was very helpful, I'll say that for him. He put all my clothes into the closet and locked it. Standing barefoot in just a pair of pajamas in a barred room doesn't give a man a feeling of confidence. I was looking at those very real bars when I realized Glendon had come back into the room. He had a shot glass in his hand. Yeah, drink hearty. <laughs> Go on, it's, it's our own secret little brew. Believe me, it'll take away your desire for liquor for at least 24 hours. It was a cloudy mixture with the fragrance of steamed cauliflower. I took a deep breath, tilted my head, tossed it down, and handed the glass to Ernie and felt my knees buckle at the same time. I felt suddenly very hot, and the room seemed to rock under my feet. On Glendon's face was an expression of purely benign curiosity. Another one of my feelings was coming on, but slowly, very slowly, I found myself tilting forward, and as the last red rocket blasted off inside my skull, I knew that I was in for trouble. Big trouble. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Princess Stakes Murder. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Ken Platt's The Princess Stakes Murder was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubois. Howard Duff is Roper. Julie Adams is Monica. And Ray Danton is Charna. Featured in the cast are Denver Pyle as Clayton, Gladys Holland as Polly, Gene Howell as the clerk, Walter Tetley as Zale, and Robert Easton as Glendon. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour. Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, 
a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Kim Platt's Gymkhana Fall Play. The Princess Stakes Murder. Starring Howard Duff. Julie Adams. And Ray Danton. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Max Roper, private investigator, hunch player, and karate expert, is having his problems. Nothing seems to point the way to the murder of his friend, jockey Willie Rich. What he has found is another murder. That of young Bonnie Burns, the warm and willing receptionist of the Gilded Cuckoo Health Spa. The investigation has led Roper from Willie's murder to Pam Clayton's disappearance, to backtracking into Pam's stepmother's checkered marital career, to a demonstration of Tyler Clayton's expertise with firearms, to the knowledge that there is a mystery man somewhere named Thomas Hunter who may have something to do with all of it. But as of the moment, Max Roper is in no position to inquire any further. He is now a client of the Gilded Cuckoo in a barred room, his clothing locked away, and having just swallowed a prescribed elixir, is in the process of crashing into black oblivion. Is this any way to treat a detective? In a moment, Max Roper will be treated to a ride on a diabolical machine called the Isotron as the Princess Stakes Murder continues. But first, this word. I tried to raise my head, but couldn't. I heard a soft gushing of voices. My vision cleared temporarily, and I saw a chunky, light-haired man standing next to Glendon. He wore light-rimmed eyeglasses, and I knew I'd seen him before. I knew his name was Dorn, but I couldn't figure why he was looking down at me. I tried to raise myself up to ask him, but there were solid straps of tight canvas lashing me securely to the bed. I didn't need anything more to tell me that once again I had miscalculated my moves and underestimated theirs. I shook my head and tried to growl and fell asleep instead. I was getting pretty good at that. He's coming around. I was on my back, tilted toward the ceiling. Square tiles shifted in and out of focus and finally settled into a pattern that held... I began to understand that I was lying on a tilted, narrow board barely wide enough for my frame. My feet rested on an angled slab at the bottom. I recognized the contraption as an exercise slant board used in gyms. I'd been on one before, but never with my arms tied behind the board. Apparently, I was going to be introduced to a new exercise. I looked down past my nose to the straps bisecting my body. 
My upper torso was stripped bare. Wires were strung along me at intervals extending out of view. Pain parted my scalp. Phantom fingers of metal told me to lie there quietly and not move. He's ready now. I wanted to laugh and tell him he was ridiculous. A million volts of concentrated force hit me in the back. My body tensed and surged upward, tearing the breath out of me. I settled back, nerves quivering and jiggling, and waited for the next one. A strange smell filled my nostrils. I identified it immediately. The musky scent of fear. My cortex knew what my body didn't. That I was going to be tickled to death. I was ready when it came, but it didn't help. The contact wire bit into my flesh. I leaped. Why are you here, Mr. Roper? I could have told him, because I was a dumb dick. We're waiting for an answer. My entire upper left quadrant recoiled in a monstrous heave. I'm sure you understand that your body of nerves will give out long before this machine. Now, I ask you once more, why are you here? I, I told you to get in shape, to take weight off. The contact pad on my left side jumped. Electricity hammered into my nerves and muscles. I twitched like a harem hopeful in a shimmy contest. My body contorted and leaped, jiggled and contracted. In between shots, I was doing what came naturally to a bowl of jello, my nervous system exploding in long, undulating ripples. I shivered and shot uncontrollably. Each contact stimulated another mass of ganglia into pulsed reflex. I expected at any moment a contraction severe enough to snap a bone. What the hell's going on? You, you treat all your customers this way? I'm asking you once more, what are you looking for? If you think I'm keeping something back, why haven't you clowns thought of using sodium pedithol? That's supposed to be pretty good for digging out the truth. Yeah, but the isotron is more memorable. It might even deter you from seeing us again. You're wrong, sweetie pie. What I'm going to do to you when I get out, that's the thing I'm going to remember. Well, let's have one more for the road for Mr. Roper. It was a beaut, but it didn't break my back. Dr. Savage came forward again. I saw the hypo in his hand and foolishly tried to draw away. The wires held me in place. My forearm was swabbed and the needle went in. You might like this one. It's PCP, uh, the peace pill. It's good for hallucinations, uh, delusions, and possibly a depressed state. Why are you here? What do you want? What are you looking for? My field of vision began to whirl. Before my eyes, alternate blocks of color. Red, blue, yellow, then checkerboards. And then, nothing. I awoke to a million ants and grasshoppers doing a war dance across my body. I jerked as the contact pads fed me a massive jolt. My legs exploded. I lurched. Then was aware that the last contraction had snapped the bands lashing my legs to the slant board. Gurgling noises rose from my throat. The white-coated Dr. Savage came over. I waited until he was close, hooked my right foot between his thighs, and drew him closer. Kicked out with my left foot, striking with the instep. Dr. Savage gasped. His head snapped back. He groaned and fell on me. 
Glendon came rushing over. I let the doctor drop and hooked him with my right foot. His mouth opened in surprise. I shut it with an ankle kick. Got both legs around him and squeezed until his eyes bulged. <laughs> Cut me loose, Glendon, or I'll kick you. He looked at the inert Dr. Savage on the floor and believed me. My hands were still palsied when Glendon cut them free, but I gave him a wrist, palm, heel, and sword peak hand anyway. He went down like a sack. Ernie, the husky guard, walked in carrying another of those wicked little shot glasses. When he saw Glendon and the doctor on the floor, he came charging. I waited and timed it with a perfect high kick, catching him flush on the jaw with the ball of my foot. He buckled forward. I gave him the inverted fist strike to the spleen. He turned green, and I toppled him like a tree with a chop. Got to my feet, leaned over, and pulled Glendon up. Where's Pam Clayton? I don't know. She isn't here. We let her go. What's it all about? Why hold her and cover up her appointment? It wasn't my idea. I had to. Who's behind it? Who gave you the orders? Uh, don't go away, Glennon. Ernie began to stir. I picked up the little shot glass and shoved it down his throat. He gurgled but swallowed it. I wouldn't have any further worry about him. Then I strapped Glendon onto the slant board. No, please, please, don't, don't turn it on. Then talk. Before I blacked out of my room, I saw a man with you. His name is Dorn. Works for Louis Charnock. Does uh, Dorn have a piece of your action here? No, 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 no. Uh, he he was here for uh, uh, he he was here for a rubdown. Come off it! You admitted snatching Pam Clayton wasn't your idea. Now who are you fronting for? Whose idea was it? Uh, Mister uh, Mister Dorn suggested. Now he, he didn't explain his plan to me. I, I had to do it. Why? You've got yourself a good thing here. How come you take orders from Charnock and Dorn? They got something on you? Is that it? Either you cooperate or they blow the whistle on you, something like that. Please. Or is it a, a blackmail ring? Your rich patrons, their hang-ups, booze, drugs, sex. As director here, you'd know all the dirt. And their financial ratings, too. Well, are you going to talk? Uh, Dorn. Uh, I'm, uh, Mr. Dorn. You're saying Dorn. You mean Charnock, don't you? Please, let me up. Maybe I'll just plug you in for a while, loosen you up some. No. No? There is no pain. <laughs> Mr. Roper, I know nothing. You had the Clayton kid doped up. What then? A set of compromising pictures to make her old man cough up a lot of loot? No, no, it, it, it wasn't nothing like that. No, she was she was given sedation to, to keep her quiet, that's all. What did you give her, a shot like you gave me? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I told her that there was a, a personal phone call for her in my office, and uh, while she waited, I gave her a cola with the drug. How did you explain it to her when she came to? Well, uh, we, we had one of our staff handling. Uh, he told her that, that she had fainted, that there was, you know, some new mysterious virus going around. She believed us, and she left. Well, she hasn't returned yet. Did you know that? Was she driving her own car? Yeah, yeah uh, it's uh, a green convertible. Now, I assumed that she'd be going straight home. You assume rotten. Pam Clayton wasn't your only client with money. Why was she picked, and why Labor Day? I, I don't know. I don't know. What about Tom Hunter? You're not going to answer, Mr. Glendon? All right, let's see. How do you turn this thing on? No, 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 no. He, he, he is inside. He, it's the last room, ground floor number 11. Your teeth are chattering, Glendon. After what you put me through, I ought to just... I'll, I'll tell you. I, I'm going to tell you everything. Now, now, see, Hunter suspected that we had Miss Clayton here. Well, he, he started to take the place apart. We had to jump him. We, we had to quiet him down. You let the girl go. Why not Hunter? Orders. Uh, they were afraid that he'd make trouble. Who the hell is this guy Hunter, anyway? I don't know. What did you do to him? Uh, memory block. 
we were trying to erase his memory. With this keen little machine? No, no. Uh, drugs and hypnosis. Uh, what we call condition regression. Hmm. You're going to take me to him, Glennon, right now. I unbuckled the straps. Glennon's knees almost caved in as he stood up, but he led me back to my room. I locked him in the closet while I dressed. My bag had been searched, but they overlooked my gun in the false bottom. I nudged Glendon with it. He nodded politely and led me to the room at the far end of the corridor. He unlocked the door and I waved him in. A man was lying on the bed staring listlessly at the ceiling. He matched the description Joey Zale had given me, except his face was now pale and haggard, eyes rimmed with dark circles. A wide gauze bandage topped his skull. What's under the bandage? A small hole bored in his skull? Electrode implants for altering behavior? No, no, it's nothing like that. <clears throat> He put up a fight and, and banged his head falling. It was just a, a mild concussion at the worst. And he, he didn't respond to hypnosis at all. There are some like that, you know. Tough. So uh, why is he so listless? Narcotics. Uh, he, he's in a stupor. Now, it's going to wear off in a day or so. I, now, I, I assure you, he's going to be all right. Mr. Hunter? Mr. Hunter? Maybe you did better than you thought, Glendon. No, no, now see, he, 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 he's coming around. Mm. Who are you? Friend of Willie's, Willie Rich. Willie Rich. Come on, Glendon, help me get him dressed. No, not leaving, not without the kid. Pam Clayton's not here. Take my word for it. I'm Willie Rich's friend, Hunter. I wouldn't lie to you. Willie. <clears throat> Come on, Hunter. Up you go. Pam's probably home by now. You want to see Pam, don't you? Night shift will be coming on. we got to get out of here. Pam. See Pam. Okay, Glendon. You lead the way. <coughs> it was a short walk down the hall to the side exit, but it seemed miles burdened by Hunter's confused condition. As we hit the cool night air, Hunter's legs buckled and he went limp. Glendon helped me shove him into my car. I could see he was looking around nervously. Don't worry, Glennon. I'll explain it all to Charnock and Dorn when I catch up with them. You've got a bigger worry. Something you should really be nervous about. Who killed Bonnie Burns? What? You're joking. A knife in the back's a bad joke. I found her up at Lake Tahoe. Did they tell you that that was how she would spend her vacation? Dead? Well, I... I You're being I, played for a patsy, Glendon. You can get 10 to 20 as an accessory. Who told you to let Bonnie off? I heard a rustle behind us in the dark shrubbery separating the parking lots. Something whistled, glinted in the night. It thudded heavily close to me. Glenn's mouth opened in a surprised scream that aborted suddenly as he coughed and fell against me. He sagged, pulling my arms down with him, and I couldn't find my gun. I judged the knife on his back to have at least a six-inch blade. Glenn was coughing frothy red bubbles. His dead eyes stared at me accusingly. As if I'd asked him one question too many. Allie Regal opened his door, then followed me down his driveway and helped me carry Tom Hunter into his house. We bedded him down on the living room couch. Turning to leave, I knocked a magazine of local coming events off the coffee table. A lucky accident. It told me Charnock was in San Diego, a ten-minute ride away. I had questions for Charnock about Hunter. It took me longer than I'd expected to get to the theater. The lobby lights were out, cars were driving away. I stopped my car abruptly. 
Louis Charnock was getting into his long black car. Dorn wasn't with him. The car took off down the Embarcadero north along the riverfront. There were plenty of hotels in San Diego, but Charnock was heading out of the city. I tailed him up Highway 101. The limo swung off the causeway where a curving ramp led to a sumptuous bayside motor hotel, the Bahia Bay. He pulled into a parking stall at the far end, fronting a dark bungalow. I stopped, doused my lights, watched Charnock get out, say goodnight to his chauffeur, and go inside. The chauffeur lit a toque, leaned back against his seat, and enjoyed the quiet night. His hand, holding the butt, dangled outside the open car window when I came up. I slammed his wrist to the side of the car, leaned in with a solid left, smashing his nose, aborting his outcry. I slugged him again, yanked the door open, and he was out cold. One thing about the bloodletting business, it never hurts to catch a sucker off guard. I removed his belt, lashed his hands together with it, dumped him over into the back seat. Charnock opened his bungalow door to my knock. When he saw my gun, he backed up fast, and I shut the door behind me, locking it. I had a lot of questions to ask you the last time we met. We never got to them. Now I have several more. Uh, let's start with George Glendon. What's your connection with him? George who? Glendon. Glendon. Try harder. He runs the spa at Poe, the Gilded Cuckoo. He seems to be running errands for you, too. I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Roper, isn't it? I don't know Glendon or what you're talking about. How about Pam Clayton? Does that ring a bell? I know Monica Clayton, but then we've known each other for years. This gun can go off, you know. I was given a pretty good going over at the Gilded Cuckoo by the same Mr. Glendon I mentioned, so don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about because I've heard differently. Also, while I was getting that going over, I happened to see your friend Dorn. Well, that's quite possible. Mr. Dorn might have some interest there. He has many outside interests. None of them concern me. Let's try some other names. Bonnie Burns, Tom Hunter. I'm sorry, I don't know them. Does Dorn? I suggest you ask him. I will when I get to him. But Dorn works for you and you're the boss as far as I'm concerned. Pam Clayton was abducted, so was Hunter. Bonnie Burns was killed, and now Glendon's got a knife in his back. I find all that very distressing, but I don't know any of these people. I'm a private investigator, Charnock. On Labor Day, a friend of mine, Willie Rich, was drowned in his swimming pool. I don't think it was his idea. Somehow, I think you're involved. Tyler Clayton's daughter disappeared the same day. Monica Clayton asked me to find her. She had an appointment at the beauty spa. Glendon told me she never got there, but admitted later to keeping her a prisoner said that he was acting on orders of higher-ups and implicated you and Dorn. I personally saw Monica Clayton at the theater with you the following day. She didn't come to see me. She came to see Dorn. Why? I imagined to bring him some money. Blackmail? It's been going on for a long time. It's not quite like you think. Mr. Dorn uses me for affront. I happen to be... A convenience. Perhaps I can explain our relationship. As he explained it, I had the feeling that Charnock felt relieved to finally be able to tell someone. It seemed that 25 years ago, he had committed an indiscretion with a minor, male. Good for a morals rap. Wesley Dorn, a sharp and conniving lawyer, got the evidence and found himself in a position to put an end to young Charnock's platform career. But he was shrewd enough to sense a better arrangement, a partnership with him calling the shots for Charnock. I was a success from the start. Women gave me money, large amounts, remembered me in their wills, gave me real estate, businesses, insurance policies. It was incredible, really. And you never got a dime out of it? 
You might say just living expenses. Dawn has power of attorney over me. Yeah, you could have got out. Dawn didn't make you write books about what you do. You could have come up with a sore throat or something at your lectures. You don't sound like a president of me. Oh, don't misunderstand, please. I believe in my messages, my books, my lectures. Like it or not, Dawn has made it possible for me to continue my work. Despite his hold on me, I sincerely believe I've helped many people. Mm. You told me Monica Clayton's paying off Dawn, too. What's he got on her? Some porno films from a long time ago. She bought them back and found out Dawn reproduced the negatives. Mm. He's had her on the hook all these years? Yes. Monica has been rather careless at different stages of her life. She's picked up some bad habits. I have nothing to fear from you, Mr. Roper. Apparently, Wesley Dorn has. Where is Dorn now? He has a houseboat in the cove, a short distance off the pier. It's called the Sea Serpent. You can't miss it even at night. It's positively unique. After leaving Charnock, I looked into the back of his car to see how his chauffeur was doing. He was gone. When I got to the pier, I expected J.J. to be waiting for me. He wasn't. I found a small boat with oars. I made like Captain Bly and headed for a large gray shape with bright lights a hundred yards out in the bay. The sea serpent was camping and attractive. The deck was an extended front porch. There were shutters on the windows and potted plants. A front door and living room covered with brilliant red carpeting. Dorn was lying on it. Face up, a lot of it missing above the eyes. I was a little disappointed, but not too surprised. Two bullets had pinpointed in his forehead, putting an end to this stage of the investigation, not to mention Dorn. Well, one less suspect, one more corpse. Now is the time for another one of my failings. <laughs> no such luck. I was right back where I started. Nowhere. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes. And listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Princess Stakes Murder. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Kim Platts, The Princess Stakes Murder, was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubon. Howard Duff is Roper. Julie Adams is Monica. And Ray Danton is Charnock. Featured in the cast are Robert Easton as Glendon and Carl Swenson as Hunter. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week... Kim Platt's Gymkhana full play. The Princess Stakes Murder. Starring Howard Duff. Julie Adams. And Ray Danton. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. It all began as a day at the races. Labor Day, Delmar. The Princess Stakes. But for Max Roper, private detective, the race is far from over. His friend, jockey Willie Rich, never got out of the starting gate. Bonnie Burns, a comely receptionist, died at the clubhouse turn. Down the back stretch, health spa operator George Glendon got a knife in the back. Bunko artist Wesley Dorn never made the far turn. Now they're coming down the home stretch. Four people have been scratched so far. Still in the race are the jockey's widow, an underworld hitman. A metaphysical charlatan, his chauffeur, six airline passengers, a mystery man from Acapulco, a former movie star, one of her four ex-husbands, her current gun-toting spouse, and his missing daughter, a phantom entry. At this point, Max Roper can only be certain of one thing. It's going to be a photo finish. The Princess State's murder concludes after this word. Dorn's houseboat had been carefully picked apart. Desk drawers were slightly open and things had been tossed about in the closets. Someone had been hastily looking for something. Either Dorn had or his killer. I eliminated Louis Charnock, the chauffeur, J.J., and myself as suspects, leaving the rest of the world to consider. I was annoyed at George Glendon for dying too soon. He would have made a very plausible killer. I rode back to the pier and got in my car. It was nearly midnight when I reached Allie Regal's house. Allie's car was gone, and that wasn't all. When I opened the front door, I saw that Hunter wasn't on the couch. Allie Regal was on the floor, flat on his face, horizontally contemplating the rug. I turned him over. Oh. Allie. Did, did you get him? Get who? A man you laid off here, Hunter. I leaned over to check how he was, and he was ready and decked me. Oh, what what time is it? Twelve five. Boy, you must have just passed him. 
If I did, I didn't recognize him. He was wearing your car. Moonbeams etched their ghostly fingers through the foggy night as I eased into the humpback drive in Escondido. The stately white ranch of Willie Rich was dark and quiet. It was late, but I hoped Penny Rich was out swinging somewhere, according to her custom. The side terrace door was susceptible to a little applied effort, and I went inside carefully. The curtain fell in place behind me. I put my thin pencil torch to work and found my way through the living room to Willie's den and study. The desk dominated the room. French Empire. Massive. It drew me like a magnet. I searched, wondering what I was looking for. The lock of the center drawer had been forced. It contained old racing programs, a pair of binoculars, and a small key that fitted the lock to the drawer. I pulled out the drawer and studied it. It was shallow. I set it on the desk, stooped, and searched the center with my torch. Couldn't find anything and compounded that by losing my balance. As I teetered forward, my hand struck the wood. The wood yielded, then sprang back. I tugged gently, and out it came. Another drawer. Secret compartment right out of Napoleon's day. But I exulted too soon. There wasn't a thing in it. I turned it over and found an old auction sticker pasted on the bottom. I peeled it off and pocketed it, set the drawers back in place, and straightened up. I went back out the terrace door. As the night air hit me, I felt the thin edge of cold steel against my throat. There wasn't a thing I knew in karate to counter that feeling. I didn't recognize the blade, but I knew the voice of Johnny Cascio. Working overtime, pal. Let's march it around to the other side of the swimming pool. I want a good look at you. Remembering Cascio's reputation with a knife, I elected to cooperate. It was awkward, walking with his bent arm circling my throat, but it beat a slit jugular. Penny Rich was waiting, looking blousily lovely and stoned. Well, wise guy, what's your excuse for breaking in? It's still my house, you know. What are you doing here? Answer the lady, pal. Willie was murdered. I'm looking for his killer. You expect to find him hiding inside the house, maybe? I heard the house had been broken into a couple of times since. I figured whoever killed Willie was still looking for something Willie had. I thought maybe I could find it. Find what? I don't know. Try harder, pal. Someone pulled into the driveway. Johnny Cascio tense, turning his head. I twisted away, striking sharply upward and outward with a four-fist upper block. As Cascio's knife hand was knocked aside, I got an outside cover on his wrist. At the same time, I struck hard at his temple with knife hand strike the face. He sagged. I grabbed his head, pulling it down, and gave him a knee kick, driving hard into his face, feeling his molars give. Cascio groaned, and the knife went clattering on the stone terrace. I added vital stroke technique, spread hand, fingers stiffly extended right out. The thrust was sharply upward to his abdomen. He collapsed at my feet. Look what you've done to poor Johnny. Get out of here. Oh, Johnny, honey, speak to me. I was just leaving. Uh, oh, uh, Mrs. Rich, you might give Mr. Cascio his knife back. I know how much you like to swim. I left the unlikely couple and headed for my car. Oddly, mine was the only one in the driveway. I wondered how they'd gotten there and also what happened to the other car I'd heard pull in. I got in the car and ran my hand over my throat. That had been one close shave. Then I couldn't help but notice the cold barrel of a thirty-two caliber pistol sticking in my ear. I recognized the man in the back seat through the rearview mirror. I'll take what you found in there. 
Glad you could make it, Mr. Hunter. I've been looking all over for you. Hunter got in beside me. We drove west over the black tar curving road and pulled up at the junction to Delmar. I explained to him my search of Willie's den, my stupidity in not knowing what I'd been looking for, and incidentally reminded him that I was the guy who got him out of the spa. I remember. That's why you're still living. What brought you to the spa, anyway? I played the record again, starting with Willie winning the Princess Stakes at Delmar and ending up with Doran's murder, then asked Hunter about his business at the Gilded Cuckoo Spa. I didn't figure he was there for a massage. Well, my name is Hunter, and you seem familiar with Monica Clayton's background. When she was Monica Moore, the movie star, she married Johnny Hunter. He was my brother. Now, that's 20 years ago, ancient history, until Willie contacted me in Acapulco recently and brought me up here. How did you know, Willie? Well, he knew Johnny from way back. In fact, he introduced Johnny to Monica. And Johnny died soon after they got married. We got the coroner's report, overdose of barbiturates. And we were broken up about it, but these things happen. A month ago, I got a letter from Willie. He said he had proof that Johnny had been murdered. It wasn't suicide or accidental. There were two people he named who could be responsible. Wesley Dorn and Monica Moore. Well, that is uh, Clayton. What kind of proof did Willie say he had? I know Monica's been paying blackmail up until tonight. She's free now that Dorn's dead. I don't know how he found it, but somehow Willie found my brother Johnny's diary. There's supposed to be something incriminating in it. That why you were trying to contact the Claytons to put the finger on Monica? Well, I had another reason. Another brother. Ty Clayton. Clayton? But uh, your name is Hunter. Well, we were all Claytons. Ty, myself, and little Johnny, born in Melfort, Saskatchewan, Canada. Our mother married Avery Clayton, a lumberman, and he died when we were kids. Our mother married a few years later, Jacob Hunter. Well, Johnny was seven then, I was ten. And Ty, the oldest, kept our father's name. Yeah, now I see what Clayton meant when he told me he'd always been a hunter. But why weren't you welcome at your own brother's house when you tried to contact Pam? Well, Pam was the only one I thought I could trust. You see, neither Ty nor I took complete stock of that coroner's report. We both thought Monica had something to do with Johnny's death and made a pact to find out. And I got in some trouble and headed for Mexico. Ty gave me his word that he'd stay with it looking for evidence against Monica. Well, the next thing I know, his wife Audrey dies and he marries Monica. That was a year ago. He still hasn't made a move against her. We sat there a minute smoking. Then my hand found the thirty-eight I keep back in my seat. Hunter never saw it coming and I laid it on him behind the ear. He probably had a good case against Monica, but I like to make up my own mind. It wasn't far to Allie Regal's house. I stashed Hunter there again, admonishing Allie to hang on to him this time, and took off. Under a full moon, Delmar seemed eerily quiet. I found Joey Zale in the stall and shook him awake. Hey, hey what the... Joey, listen. What happened to Willie's gear after the weigh-in? He took it to the jock's room. Is it still there? I want the saddle. Come on, Roper. I can get tagged 50 for it. Here's 100. Joey found the saddle for me. My hand, deep inside the weight pocket, contacted a red leather-bound book, Johnny Hunter's Diary. But the light was insufficient to read. I struck a match. 
In the saddle? Not just a book, Joey. Answers. As diaries went, it was no literary achievement, but it traced a straight line that had led to murder. August 27, stomach hurts. August 31, stomach hurting a lot lately. Burning. Can't keep food down. September 4, pain worse. Vomiting. Gotta take some of Monica's pills if I'm ever to sleep. Pain's terrible. Think I know why. The last entry, September 5th. September 6th, Johnny Hunter was dead. The clerk at the coroner's office took my $2 and dug up the certificate of death. Overdose of drugs, alcohol content, 0.09. The document was signed by the examining physician, Luther Stokes, M.D. I attempted to reach Dr. Stokes. He'd been dead for 15 years. Hit and run accident. I went over to see my friend at homicide, Camino. Told him what I was up to. He looked through the diary, dropped it finally. You don't have the last page of it? Not yet. Johnny Hunter was buried at Holly Memorial Park. Dr. Stokes was killed almost immediately afterwards. Maybe it wasn't an accident. What are you expecting a fire? Arsenic? That went out of style a long time ago. Maybe the killer didn't know it at the time. All right, suppose we find something. You know as well as I do, arsenic leaves traces. Bones, hair, fingers, toenails. Right. But you still have to prove your suspect had possession, administered it. I'll be able to state where and when. Yeah, you know as well as I do that you can't. And you can't produce this diary's evidence either. Hunter died and can't confirm it. Ah, oh, get out of here. Let me feel sorry for myself. I, I got a hell of a toothache. I went over it all again in my mind. Everything seemed to hinge on Willie's discovery of the diary. I knew only a small part of the waves he had made. Only the killer would know how totally engulfing they might be. I thought about the missing diary page. I thought about the missing Pam Clayton and why it was so difficult to find her. I thought it was about time I went for the killer. Hello, this is Diana Chesney. I'll be here in the new radio mystery series, The Zero Hour. Listen for Juliet Mills... Robert Brown, Mari Matheson, and me when the Zero Hour presents Queen in Danger. Thank you. This is Rod Serling. Right here on KAPX, you'll reach your Zero Hour on the Hollywood Radio Theater. It'll be dangerous for you to miss it. Listen to the Hollywood Radio Theater on Stereo 108 for exciting radio drama every night, Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. and again at 11.30 p.m. Running the Del Mar Futurity. The Claytons were at the track. Calamity had just come in a winner, paid 420. I watched Tyler Clayton go down to the winner's circle. Then I touched Monica Clayton's elbow. Mr. Roper. Why didn't you tell me Willie Rich introduced you and your first husband? Uh, Johnny Hunter, wasn't it? How did you know that? I also saw your first husband's death certificate today. Accidental death, it said. Would you be in accord with that? Frankly, I'm not. I prefer the evidence in the diary. Diary? Your husband owned a Napoleonic desk. I can just see him keeping a diary under lock and key in the secret compartment. Then he dies and you sell his furniture. It ends up in storage and one day Willie Rich acquires it out of sentiment for his old friend, probably. That desk sits in Willie's study for years until one day he accidentally opens the secret compartment, as I did tonight, and he finds the diary. 
I don't believe any of this. Well, check with the La Cienega Auction House. Uh, Mr. Sonnenberg there keeps records. I found an old auction sticker on the bottom of the drawer. He filled in the rest. Incidentally, the diary's very interesting reading, Mrs. Clayton. Could be a bestseller. I left her staring helplessly and walked away. My hands were wet and clammy. It was dusk when I pulled up to the cottage at the far end fronting the bay. Charnock's big black car wasn't around, nor the blonde bodyguard, J.J. I had called before, so Charnock was expecting me. Come in, Mr. Roper. You look tired. Yeah, it's been a rough week. I've just made some tea. Here, let me pour you some. I'm very upset about your suspicions of Monica. She's simply not the type. Anybody can be a killer, but I didn't say she was. I said she was responsible for her first husband's death. I didn't say she did it. Let's talk about your friend Dorn. I see what you mean. You're referring now to the hold he had on Monica. Yes, he could have driven her husband to suicide or even killed him. It's all my fault. It was only because of my weakness that Dawn could continue to exist. Uh, don't blame yourself. If Monica was innocently involved 20 years ago, she's up to her ears now. Yes. Your friend, the poor unfortunate jockey. The whole thing is harrowing. It's preposterous to think of Monica as part of it. Not Monica. Her husband, Tyler Clayton. Clayton? The millionaire oil man? You think he committed the murders? Well, listen and see what you think. I recited the whole story again. The thing I hit hardest was that I figured Clayton had married Monica to try to get even with her for the murder of his brother Johnny. But then he'd fallen in love with her and now was protecting her from the damaging evidence Willie had found in Johnny's diary. I see. Yes. Terrible for Clayton. He'll have to pay for his crimes. Maybe not. For one thing, he still hasn't found the diary. Well, his brother would have had it, I suppose. Perhaps your friend Rich gave it to him for safekeeping. No, he's looking for it, too. And then perhaps Clayton's daughter. No, she doesn't know where it is. But I do. I see. You're astonishing, Mr. Roper, putting this ghastly series of crimes all together. But one part of your logic eludes me. Uh -huh. I can see why Clayton would have murdered all these people. But certainly he had no reason years back to kill his youngest brother. No reason at all. And logically, you must admit he couldn't have. That's right. He couldn't have for the most logical reason of all. You did. My dear man, do I hear correctly? You killed them all, starting with Johnny Hunter. That would be hard to prove that Dawn did. That's part of the proof. What would it take to convince you? Some luggage on the way back from Tahoe. You spent a week there, remember? What are you talking about? We met on the plane coming back. You just killed Bonnie Burns. I just found her body. There are only seven passengers on board. You were the dental surgeon coming down with cancer. You had me convinced, too. You've been an actor. You know all the makeup tricks. The best disguise is always the simplest. Eyeshadow, hollows for the cheeks, easy with the removal of partial dentures, gray wigs, smoky glasses. Your performance was flawless till we got off the plane. Even a man coming home to die carries his clothing back with him. But you didn't pick up any luggage. You headed right for a taxi. I didn't see the gun in his hand until it was too late. Then the big bruiser J.J. was there, and something no heavier than a cannon dropped on my head. As I folded to hit the carpet, I noticed my empty hands, lax and useless, cold steel, tapped me on the nose. On your feet and walk slow. Open your mouth and you're dead. You're going to take us to the diary. Oh, Willie hit it good. I'm the only one...
I'd left Delmar a loser many times. It was a shame to be coming back that way. If Allie Regal had any security men checking his joint, you'd never have known it. J.J., Charnock, and I moved in and out, avoiding the lighted stables where men were working. Once we held back in the darkness while someone passed. The gun in my back, J.J.'s massive paw over my mouth. I'll tell you something. You were right all along. I killed Johnny Hunter, but I did it with imagination. Mentally. I'm a mentalist, you understand. What better way is there for murder? I offered Monica my love, but she spurned me, so I drove Hunter to feelings of persecution and suicide. You were way off on the Tahoe flight, though. I wasn't the dental surgeon. Oh? I was the lady up front with the knitting needles. I'd worn a blonde wig up. Perhaps you found it in Bonnie's cabin and a black wig back. Now, shall we proceed to the diary? Um, in that stall. Well, he left it in his saddle. Uh, there in the corner on the floor? Well, yeah. I don't see anything. It's so dark. Got a match? Charnock nervously dropped the match, lit another. As he stepped forward, a restless moving shadow inside reared high above us. J.J. and Charnock looked up, startled as the black shape struck savagely at the rail. The thin board splintered, fell away. Sister Sally burst through with a dark, avenging fury. She struck at Charnock, hooves flailing. J.J., in terror of the massive horse, tried to back away. I chopped the gun out of his hand and kicked him in the groin. He fell forward. I drove my knee through his teeth. He lay there. Hey, what's going on? And there was Joey Zale with a shotgun. I took it from his huge hands. Sister Silo continued to rear up and come down hard on Charnock, whirling and stomping and snorting. Papa, what's going on here? You know how excited Sister Sally gets around. Early Saturday morning, I drove to the office. I figured I owed my boss, O.J., a week's time. He was out, but uh, someone else was in. A pretty young girl, blonde, shapely, and very much alive, Pam Clayton. I was about to turn her over my knee, but before I could, she explained why she was there. Willie had told her that my office was the safest place to be. I'd missed her the one time I'd checked in, and she'd been there ever since, and I called myself a good private eye. Well, I didn't spank her. In fact, I ended up lending her $600 so she could run her horse, Mary Jane. Seems the old man cut off her allowance. One feeling I've always had about being a private eye. You just can't make any money in this business. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Kim Platt's The Princess Stakes Murder. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time Monday through Friday. So, on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Kim Platt's The Princess Stakes Murder was adapted for radio by Gwen Bagney and Paul Dubov. Howard Duff was Roper. Julie Adams was Monica. And Ray Danton was Charnock. Featured in the cast were Jack Crucian as Regal, Lou Krugman as Camino, Deborah Wally as Penny, 
Walter Tetley as Zale, Carl Swenson as Hunter. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To The Zero Hour. <laughs>